You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. And I'll give you a second to turn there in your Bibles or on your phones. Again, that's Matthew 4, 1 through 23. Please rise as we read the Word of God today. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to get into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, On them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. This is the word of God for the people of God.
Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner, one of the pastors here, and uh, welcome to Salem Presbyterian for me as well. Uh, we're glad you're here. And we are looking at the Jesus Storybook Bible. If um, you haven't been here yet for this sermon series, um, it's a kid's Bible, uh, but it's also very much for adults. Um, the tagline is where every story whispers his name, because every single story in the Bible is really about Jesus. And so the Jesus Storybook Bible goes through um, many, many stories in the Bible, and it has these great illustrations. And uh, tonight we get to the first one that we're going to talk about, Jesus himself. So although all the other ones have whispered his name, now we're actually going to get to see his name. And um, this is when he finally comes on the scene. And I've been saying throughout, uh, kind of one of the main points of the Storybook Bible is that God has instituted a rescue plan. Uh, She calls it, uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones, she wrote the book, she calls it the the secret rescue plan of God. And so... um, from the very beginning of uh, God's creation, he has this secret rescue plan in mind, which comes obviously through Jesus. And the big story of the Bible is that we were created in God's image. Uh, a man and a woman, Adam and Eve in the garden, were created uh, to be fruitful and multiply and to spread God's creative uh, glory around the world. We were meant to be images of God, image bearers of God. And kind of like a mirror that shines uh, the sun back. And so that's what we were created to do, is to spread uh, his gracious, creative rule in the same way that he made uh, nothingness and uh, disorder into uh, beauty and order. And um, he took this void and made everything out of it. Just as God did that, we're supposed to do the same thing with the physical world around us. And therefore we make out of all these natural materials, things like candles, and tables and tablecloths and bread and wine and clothes and all the things we've done uh, to basically reflect God back to the world. That's what we're made to do. We're supposed to start in Eden and spread that glory around the world. It's called dominion. That's the idea. Uh, The basic idea is called dominion, to spread the dominion of God. It's a beautiful thing. But instead of dominion, we have spread domination, which is kind of this uh, angry, anxious, defensive acquisition, uh, oppression, because we believe the lie of the enemy that we were not loved by God, we kind of took things into our own hands. And so everything became like my precious, you know, like the ring of power. We were, we wanted to consume. Uh, We wanted it to be ours, even our bodies, even our very selves. We wanted to have it as our own and define ourselves as we would be ourselves and not what God says about us. So the enemy came to us and said, God doesn't really love you. And we believed that lie. And we ate the fruit. And we fell. And then God brought in the secret rescue plan through his people Israel. And, and God kept telling Israel, I'm going to bring someone from you. And that person, the Messiah, will be the first one to actually start the rescue plan. Everything is kind of preliminary up to the point of Jesus coming. And so this is kind of like, this story is like, D-Day. It's like uh, if you've seen Saving Private Ryan, that first scene on the beaches of Normandy where the, uh, the allies come into Axis territory. They land, the, the, the troop carriers come down, and uh, the bullets just start flying at them. It's like God is invading enemy-occupied territory, and he's going to take it back. And that's why I love the title of this story. It's called Let's Go. You know, she wrote that before that became a thing, but it's, uh, it's got let's go. And it's got Jesus looking down with this incredible expression, like a very stern warlike expression on this snake, which is the enemy. 
And this is um, God's great light breaking into a world of darkness. That's what uh, Let's Go is about. It's God invading planet Earth and silencing the liar. That's, that's really what the temptations are all about. Is, uh, is Jesus comes as a human being to replay the temptation in the garden. And this time he's not going to believe the lie. Uh, he's going to stand for the truth. He's not going to live by lies. So he's the silencer. And then after he does that, after he wins that battle against Satan, then he goes and he recruits people who are truth tellers, who are going to join him in silencing the lie. So he, he's the silencer, and then he's the gatherer of his people, his chosen ones. And those disciples are the ones that are going to go out and they're going to begin to silence the great lie as truth tellers. And that's what we are. Uh, those of you who are Christians, that's, uh, that's one of our great missions is to... Uh, silence the lies, both in ourselves and those people around us. So first of all, what did Jesus do to silence the lie? And it's this fascinating story of the temptations. It's very famous. It said, uh, Jesus was led by the Spirit, in verse 1, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now he actually, if you notice, he's actually invading. So it's not like the devil lured him into the desert. He went into the desert. So he is... um, He's like entering into Mordor because in the, in the, in the way of the, the Jewish mind, uh, the wilderness was the place of demons. It's where you did not want to go. Uh, it's the place that was haunted uh, by evil spirits. And so um, this is like Frodo marching into Mount Doom. It's, he's, take, he's, he's going into the enemy's territory and he's like piercing the darkness. Or if you want to take uh, a more recent reference, the upside down. It's like when Steve dives into Vecna's world and he, he's going to invade evil's territory. It's kind of a thrilling thing that Jesus actually takes ground from the devil. He's not just waiting. Now the devil is kind of caught flat-footed. And so um, this is kind of the, the home court of Satan. And if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Storybook Bible, uh, there's a picture of uh, Eve being tempted by that same serpent and this is what the text says uh, in the story of the Bible. It says, the serpent said to her, does God really love you? If he does, then why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. That's the lie. God doesn't really love you. And now he's trying the same trick on Jesus with food again. He's kind of a one-trick pony, the devil. He's really not that creative He's using food once again. So with Eve, it was maybe God doesn't want you to enjoy food. Maybe he's holding back on you. Maybe he's kind of squashing you and keeping you from your full potential. And now with Jesus, the devil's like, maybe he needs to prove himself to you. Maybe he needs to prove that he loves you by giving you this miraculous food in the wilderness. But it's still food again. So in verse 3, this is the devil speaking. If you are the son of God. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus is like, if, if I am the son of God. He's like, uh, I live by my father's constant words. I am upheld. He says, uh, I do not live by bread alone. I live by every word that is spoken from the mouth of my father. So I am upheld. There's no if about it. Uh, That's what Adam and Eve believed was a lie. Is They were like, if God loves you. If you really are children of royalty, if, if you're really the king's beloved children, image bearers, then um, you should be able to eat that fruit. 
So they, they, they get into their mind this idea that maybe they're not loved. Maybe they're not really cherished. Maybe they're not valued by God. And Jesus just cuts that off. There's no if about it. I am, I am definitely the son of God. And not just as in the second person of the Trinity, but like a child of God. So he, the devil is trying to kind of split Jesus from his father. And instead of this relationship of oneness, uh, he's saying, maybe you're actually not a son of the father. It's kind of like saying, maybe, maybe, this, maybe I'm not a Milner. Maybe I'm not the son of Joseph Milner. You know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm an orphan. Maybe that's really not my family. So that's the first temptation. If you are the son of God, turn this bread into a stone. Make him prove to you that he loves you by giving you this miraculous food. The second temptation is very similar. Um, once again, if you are the son of God, it's that the if being the key word. Um, basically, Satan is saying this, you know, this so-called father of yours, this father, you know, has he really demonstrated to you that he loves you? Um, what has he done for you lately? He's kind of kept you under wraps for 30 years. You know, you're just a rabbi. You're a nobody from Galilee. And he has failed to showcase your full talents. And so if you really are the son of God in verse four, the verse six, then throw yourself from the temple. You know, go way, way up to the top of the temple, the most illustrious building in all of Israel, the most famous place in Israel. Go up to the top of that building and throw yourself down and make the father prove to the world that you are truly the son of God. Make him prove it. And then Jesus once again rejects that attempt to divide him from his father and his identity. And he says, we're not testing my father anymore. This is over. The testing of God is over. I'm not going to put him to the test. I'm not going to make him uh, prove himself to me. I know that I am one with him. And so I'm not going to listen to those lies. And the question is uh, to us, I think, you know, how would we have done out there in the desert with Satan? I mean, think about it. How, how often do you ask yourself, am I really beloved by God? Am I really, does he really um, think about me all the time? Does he really know me? And does he really have my best interests at heart? Am I really a son or a daughter of the king? You know, is he, is he, what has he done for me lately? Has he, is he blessing me right now? Um, has he come through for me on the things that I really need right now in my life? We're kind of always testing him as if you may or may not be a child of God. That's the test that Jesus won for us. He's actually fighting our battle for us. And he is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves because we failed the test. Because we are all daughters of Eve or sons of Adam who have failed with them, our first parents. We, like them, gave in to the lie that we're not loved. And so here's Jesus coming to fight our battle for us. And he's going ahead of us to ward off the evil one so that we can come behind him and follow in his path. Uh, again, I thought about, obviously, a Lord of the Rings fan, but in the first movie, uh, Fellowship of the Ring, there's a scene where uh, Gandalf, who is the, the great wizard, you know, the powerful white wizard, he's fighting the Balrog, who's trying to destroy the fellowship, the little hobbits. And so um, basically Gandalf puts himself on the bridge and in the mines of Moria, he puts himself between the Balrog and the little hobbits. And they stand behind him and it is Gandalf who fights the Balrog to the death. And he says to him, go back to the shadow, you shall not pass. And I think about Jesus saying, be gone, Satan, in verse 10. And when he said, be gone, Satan, he said that for us. He's the one fighting Satan face to face 
in this mortal combat, and we are just standing behind the Son of God, little hobbits, and we are participating in his victory. When he, you know, cancels Satan and sends him off, then we also, with him, cancel Satan and send him off and send him away. And so the question is, do you live in the power of the victory of the Son of God that he has won for you? And do you throw that victory in Satan's face and say, uh, I will not be tempted by you anymore because I am one with Christ who won the victory for me. I went through a, a series, um, well, a major, many months of temptation, actually, in my life recently. There was, a, there was massive relational damage done, disruption at, at, a, at a very, very deep level. And uh, it was very hard to believe for me that God had not abandoned me. I had reason to believe that he was not listening um, and that voice came into my head, you know, does God really love you? Poor you. Perhaps he doesn't want you happy. Maybe he's abandoned you. Surely you understand that. You felt that. And the victory of Jesus kept ringing in my ears. The victory that he won for me. Where he said, you know, ignore that voice. Ignore him. You know, look at me. Uh, our dad is going to get us through this. You know, I'm with you. I won the battle with you. And, and I, we are going to get through this. And uh, we're going to come out on the other end of this a different person. That's what happened to Jesus. It actually changed him. And this is controversial. But listen, um, he was a human. He was not just the son of God. We forget that he was a human. He learned obedience by what he suffered. That's what Hebrews says. That he actually changed. He became a mature person throughout the course of his life. As a baby, he was a different person. I mean, he... he actually matured and grew as a human being, as we do. He developed. There was a developmental cycle. And so when he went out to fight the devil in the wilderness and he came back, he was a more seasoned veteran who knew how to fight. He had not fought the devil before that. And now he had fought the devil. And now he was in a different place to fight for us. Again, the story of the Bible says Jesus was not like Adam. He was a new kind of man. He would not believe the terrible lie that the enemy spoke. He knew God loved him. And because he went out and fought that psychological warfare in the desert, he gave us the power, when we're tempted, to fight with him. So that he kind of comes into our head. He's like Obi-Wan Kenobi where he says, you know, use the force, Luke. Throughout, throughout Star Wars, Skywalker keeps hearing the voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi in his head. That's what we hear. We hear Jesus speaking to us because he went out and fought that battle. He silenced a lie. So that in him, we could also fight that battle. Without that, we could never fight that battle. We would be bamboozled every day by the devil. We would have, we'd be, he'd just tie us up in pretzels and knots. So that's the first point. He silenced a lie. Second point is he gathers these people to him to fight against evil and to speak the truth. And that's what uh, God's people are. We're the ones who go out and we uh, tell the truth. There's a, a great... Uh, mini series about the life of Jesus called The Chosen. And uh, there's a new season coming out. It's wonderful. There's a t shirt that my sister in law has. Uh, and on the front, it has a silhouette of the disciples coming up over a hill. It's really cool. And on the back, it says, Get used to different. Because the point is that Jesus went out and he found this ragtag group of people that were not like anyone that anyone would have picked to be the ones who would fight the power, to fight evil, to push back the lies. It says that Jesus left the desert, this is again from the Storbook Bible, and he set about the great rescue plan. 
So now in the power of the Holy Spirit, he's leaving the desert. He's going back to Capernaum. He was going to get God's people back. But first he needed to find some helpers and friends. And again, it's, it's crazy the people he goes and recruits. Um, for one thing, they're incredibly politically different. So you have Simon the Zealot, who would have been like a left-wing Marxist. And then you had like Peter and James and John and Andrew, who were like middle-class kind of fishermen. And then you had everyone in between. Matthew, the tax collector, worked for Rome. So he would have been very much pro, he would have been very patriotic. And so you have this incredible spectrum of people who would never get along. And he gathers them. And he says, get used to different. This is a, this is a very different kind of community that I'm forming here. It says in verse 17, he moved to Capernaum to preach, repent for the kingdom is at hand. I'm bringing a new kind of kingdom. Change your mind, change your way of thinking. That's what repent means. Metanoia means change your mind. Look at reality in a different way because I am now here. And it's interesting that he chooses Capernaum of all places. Uh, It says in verse 16 that Isaiah spoke a prophecy about him coming, and Isaiah said that he would come to a people dwelling in darkness, in the shadow of death. So this is an especially uh, deluded, corrupt place that he's coming. Um, The people of Jerusalem thought that Galilee was kind of a combination of like Mississippi and Las Vegas. And no offense if you're from either of those places, but Mississippi is the it is the country, uh, it is the state in our country with the least educated, just, that's just the statistically the case. So you have Mississippi, that's like Capernaum. And then, of course, Las Vegas is the most idolatrous place in the country. So the people dwelling in darkness and the shadow of death would be like the combination of those two things. And this is where God says, I want the kingdom to start there. You know, not Jerusalem, um, not where the philosophers live in Athens. But I want to go to Capernaum. Uh, Verse 16, that's where the the people have seen a great light. I think he likes the contrast between uh, the darkness of Capernaum and the brilliance of the message of Christ silencing lies. That's where the light has dawned in the valley of the shadow of death. It's like the, the greatest sunrise you've ever seen. You know, at the beach probably or in the mountains, you see this amazing sunrise. But in this case, it's coming up over a fish processing center Kind of like Moorhead City. If you've been to Moorhead City, um, it doesn't smell very good. It's a a lot of blue-collar work. Uh, Fish smells everywhere. Verse 18, they're casting nets into the sea. So when we go to uh, the beach, there's this place called Clyde Phillips Seafood. And uh, it's the people there, these guys with these huge, uh, like, rubber gloves on. It's very cold in there. It smells terrible. It smells like fish. They have overalls on. There's, like, flakes of stuff all over the place. And that's the type of person that Jesus came to, is somebody who would have worked at Clyde Phillips Seafood. He, he doesn't come to priests. He doesn't come to philosophers. He comes to fishermen. It says in verse 21, James and John were in the boat with their fathers. These were young guys. They're working with their dad. It's a family business. James and John. Um, Jesus comes and he redeems the grind. And he says, I'm going to, verse 19, I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to take the work you're doing that you probably hate, where you have to pay all these taxes to Rome, and they set your prices for you, and you take them almost nothing, and it's a total grind, and I'm going to redeem your fishing. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Get used to different. Uh, Verse 20 says, immediately they threw away their nets, and they followed him. That's their entire livelihood. I mean, imagine just completely 
quitting. You just walk out of the, uh, the office one day and you, you're just done. And you have no prospects of any income on the other side of that. And they just leave. Verse 20, immediately they threw their nets away. They were so drawn to him. He was like some kind of huge magnet that was pulling them away from their nets. And even in verse 22, their father was there. It says it again, immediately they left their boat and their father, who was probably protesting, and they followed him. And uh, it says in the Storbuk Bible that the God man was not like anyone they had ever met. When they looked at him, their hearts were filled with a wonderful forever sort of happiness. There was something about him that was so compelling that they could not continue to do their work. Simply because he called, he just said, follow me. No big speech, no manipulation. Two words, follow me. And they came. They immediately followed him. Because his word is so powerful. And they're happy uh, because this is the man who could defeat lies. They can just, when they look at him, they just see truth. They, they see a man who has seen through evil and darkness. And he, he can look right through them and look into what the lies they believe. And they know that he can defeat evil somehow. That's what draws them to him. So they said, they're thinking to themselves, you know, I'm, I'm stuck in a dead-end job. I'm in a career I hate. And they hear, they hear him saying in their head, you know, your labor is not in vain. It's not true. Uh, you, what you're doing matters. And they're saying in their head, you know, we're barely making it. We're forgotten by God. We're going to starve here. And they hear in their head, they look in his eyes and they see a man who says, I chose you particularly to lead my kingdom. Fisherman that you are. I chose you to lead my kingdom. And they're thinking in their heads, we're, we're losing to Rome. You know, we're constantly taxed and oppressed by this awful regime. And, and they see him looking at them and they, they believe that Rome will fall to the power of the kingdom that we're going to build. Can you imagine that these fishermen, uh, who are some of the people with the least amount of influence in the whole Roman Empire, in the backwoods of the corner of the empire, that one day, you know, 300 years later, not that long in the future, that actually Emperor Constantine would say, I'm going to make my new symbol uh, the Cairo, which means Jesus Christ is king. Because of the work they did, that Rome actually fell to the power of Jesus and his movement that he started with these fishermen. This is what they went to proclaim. And they had the, they had the courage to believe it because they saw Jesus do it. They saw in his eyes that he had defeated the liar. And so they knew they could defeat the liar too. Um, not going to give the way the ending of this movie, but uh, Top Gun Maverick, great movie. So somebody's already shaking their head. <laughs> Top Gun Maverick, uh, I highly recommend it. I did not think I would like it. I didn't like the first Top Gun, but this movie I thought was fantastic. And this only is about halfway through the movie, and it's, it's a really cool idea. So Tom Cruise, of course, is Maverick, and um, he's the leader of this. He's, he's gathering together the best pilots in the world to fly this impossible mission in some country that is never named. Fascinating part of the movie is they never named the country that they're fighting, which I thought was really cool. Anyway, he's, uh, he's got to lead them to believe that they could beat uh, the gauntlet that they have to run. So it's like they swivel through these mountains. They go up a hill. They have to go down a hill. You know, drop their bombs in and then come out at this incredible angle and then get away from the other fighter pilots. So they simulate the whole thing like in this, these mountains in the west, the southwest. And they, don't, they, they can't do it. None of them can do it. They can't beat the clock. 
until they see Tom Cruise like gets in a plane and he does it for them. And when they see that he does it, they believe they can do it. And they get in themselves the confidence that if that guy can do that, then I think I can do that too. And they go and they, they fly the mission. And I won't tell you what happens. It's a really good ending. Um, but the point is that if you, if you can get in your little plane now that you see Jesus has done the thing, you too can have the confidence uh, that you can silence lies. Not just for you, but for other people too. Because you've seen him do it in you, and now you say, I can do the same thing. I can go tell that person that what they believe is a lie. And that actually the truth is they're loved by God. They're a beloved child of God. Our, our own Mary Margaret Johnson, uh, who many of you know, playing the piano tonight, she's, um, she's on staff here. And she always says, uh, when, when you are attacked by the enemy and you win, you have authority in that area, which is so true. And that thing I went through with that, that temptation... Once I fought off the enemy, or actually I should say Christ in me fought off the enemy. And once that happened in that area of my life, I had authority. I have power. You have power over Satan at that point. So if your child you know, runs off the rails, if you have a child, then you have authority in the area of child rearing. If you have fought off Satan in that realm. You know, if you've had cancer and you fight the battle against cancer and you win that battle and you have fought off the Satan and his lies, then you're going to have authority in that area. And you're, you're going to be the one that people go to who have cancer. Uh, I heard somebody who said, you know, when, when, she got, when, she, when her husband divorced her and left her, the only person she wanted to talk to was somebody else who had gone through that situation, who had authority in that area. So if you have dropped out of college or failed a bunch of classes in college, then you're going to have authority in the area of people who have failed. They're going to want to come to you and talk to you. If you got fired... You're going to have authority in the area of what it means to, to work, what work really means. If you fall into addictions, disorders, in that very place, eating disorder, addiction, you're going to have authority to tell people the truth when Satan tries to lie at them. Because our power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, not many of you were wise. Not many of you Corinthians uh, were powerful. Uh, almost none of you were of, of high standing, not, no, almost no Roman citizens, a lot of slaves, a, a lot of women, a lot of children, people who are not valued by the Roman society. He said, but that is what God chose to defeat the empire. That's who God chose. Now, the next time that um, we find Jesus uh, head to head with Satan, Satan comes back to him. He chooses just the right time. He comes back to him, not in the desert, but in a garden. So it's a replay of the garden. Now they're back in the Garden of Eden. This is the Garden of Gethsemane, Garden of Eden, Satan's back. The psychological warfare is turned up to 10. You know, this is the highest level. Uh, he was, he was uh, so attacked, so seized by temptation, that it says that he actually, his sweat became blood, which actually can happen when someone's you know, in a, a state of certain stress. So, so there was blood like dropping from the, in his sweat, mixed in his sweat. Because the, the, the psychological pressure was so great. And this time Satan comes to him, and this is what it says in here. Satan says, are you, are you really God's son? I mean, he's asking you to die. He's asking you to die, to be crucified. You know, poor you, God must not love you. Surely you don't need to die. I can give you all the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus says, No. I am going to do what God says. And that was his final victory. 
that at the very point where humans are least likely to believe that we're loved, you know, when Jesus is hanging on a tree, crucified by the Roman Empire, abandoned, betrayed, all that, at the place that he is least likely to feel loved, that any of us would be, at that point he says, Father, I commit my spirit into your hands. I know you love me. I still believe that you love me. And at that point... Remember, we love these rascals.